Welcome to Sparks of History, where world history and Jewish history meet. Today, we are extremely pleased to have with us award-winning author Steve Oni. Steve Oni attended the University of Georgia and Harvard University, where he was a Neiman Fellow. He has worked for many years as a staff writer for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution magazine and has contributed many, many articles to leading national publications across the world. Today, we will be discussing Mr. Oni's And the Dead Shall Rise, a nonfiction, fascinating accounting of the murder of Mary Fagan and the lynching of Leo Frank. Uh, and the Dead Shall Rise won the American Bar Association's Silver Gravel Award for best work uh, on the nation's legal system. Also won the National Jewish Book Award for History, the Southern Book Critics Circle Prize for best nonfiction book about the South, and the Georgia Historical Society's Malcolm and Muriel Bell Award. I can read all of the uh, the accolades here. It's a compelling, relentlessly preoccupying. Um, packs a wallop on many levels, a grim and teeming ghost story. And uh, as you can see, it's it's a thick book, extremely detailed, and I enjoyed reading it very much and urge all our listeners and viewers, as I did, to simply go on to Amazon. It's the click of a button. It comes straight to your house, hassle-free. Uh, again, thank you very, very much for being with us today. Well, thank you, Ari, and thank you for that uh those generous words and that gracious plug. I appreciate it. Pleasure. Uh, to start off, your background and how you became interested in the Leo Frank story. I grew up in Atlanta and I was always vaguely aware of the Leo Frank case, but never in any explicit way. However, in 1985, I interviewed an old gent named Alonzo Mann, who had been Leo Frank's office boy. Back in 1913, Alonzo was a 14-year-old at that time. When I met him, he was in his mid-80s, and he was not well. And he had something on his conscience, which was he said he had withheld a key piece of evidence about the murder of a child named Mary Fagan that Leo Frank was convicted of committing, and which led to this whole sad saga. So, I wrote a long story for Esquire magazine based on Alonzo Mann's late in life revelations. Alonzo said essentially that on the day Mary Fagan was murdered, the day Leo Frank allegedly uh, seduced or attempted to seduce her and killed her, he saw something quite different, which was the key witness against Leo Frank toting Mary Fagan's body. And that this key witness said, to Alonzo, who was a shy teenager, keep your mouth shut or I'll kill you. And Alonzo told family members and friends about this through the years, but by and large, never went public with it. But here late in his life, he went public. So I wrote this long piece for Esquire based on Alonzo's um, revelations. And that led me to Um, doing what writers do. I cannibalized that article and turned it into a book proposal and sold it. And at the time, I thought I knew something about the Leo Frank case. I knew enough to write a long story for a magazine, but really I didn't know anything at all. Uh, The Leo Frank case is a deeply complicated, disturbing, confusing, murky uh, series of 
mishaps and disasters. And uh, I went into the deep end looking to get to the bottom of as many of them as I could. Before we get into the story itself, by way of background, what kind of a city was Atlanta, Georgia in the early 1900s? Atlanta in the early 1900s was a small, big city. Unlike other southern cities, it had accepted the Northern Victory and was actively encouraging the Northern Victory in the American Civil War and was actively encouraging Northern investment and industry. And it looked to the to the future. The rest of the South really looked to the past, but Atlanta looked to the future. And Leo Frank, a Cornell-educated Jewish industrialist, was part of the vanguard of this new Southern future that was going to um, try to modernize the workplace and uh, create capital as a basis for investment and growth as opposed to agrarianism, which is what powered most of the rest of the South. So it was a small, big city with a very well-assimilated, mostly German-Jewish population, many of whose elders had fought for the Confederacy or sympathized with the Confederacy. So the Jewish community in Atlanta at that time was part and parcel with the Gentile elite, and the Jews would have called Atlanta in 1915-1913 a five o'clock town, which is a familiar phrase, but it was a phrase meaning that, you know, during working hours, uh, Jews and Gentiles moved absolutely hand and glove together, but in the evening they went to their separate clubs and had their separate social lives. And what were race relations like in that period in Atlanta? Well, that was the boiling cauldron atop which this idea of a progressive South actually sat. Race relations were troubled. There had been a terrible race riot in Atlanta in 1906. Atlanta was not only the capital of the New South, it was really the capital of the Jim Crow South. So restaurants were obviously segregated, but so were parks and the library and all sorts of public facilities. And there was just a teeming underclass of Black um, workers. I mean, simultaneously, because there are plenty of contradictions, Atlanta was the capital of a Black renaissance, too. The universities that were clustered around the Atlanta University complex were quite forward-looking and successful. And there were many Black aspirants who were making money and achieving uh, success, unlike they were at any other city in, in any other city in the South. But there was, there was real racial strife and stress in Atlanta at this time. If you could just take us through the main storyline of the Mary Fagan murder. Well, Mary Fagan was a 13-year-old child laborer from outside of Atlanta, Cobb County, which is Marietta, Georgia, about 20 miles north of Atlanta. And Mary earned pennies an hour performing a repetitive task, which was inserting eraser tips into the metal caps of pencils. And the National Pencil Company, of which Leo Frank was superintendent and Mary was one of the lowliest employees was a big, modern, noisy, 
dirty industrial concern that turned out tens of thousands of pencils every week. Uh, it would later be renamed Scripto, which is a prominent modern brand or was until recently. But um, there was a lot of stress in this factory that went to another schism in Atlanta at the time, which was that the management class was largely male, many college educated, uh, and the working people in the factory were almost entirely child laborers, uh, many teenage girls, and there was a lot of inherent tension in a factory setting where you have young men in their 20s serving as supervisors, and 90% of the workforce are pubescent girls who are um, toiling for pennies an hour in this kind of grim setting. So there, there was a... Um, it was a disaster waiting to happen in many ways. And and the main storyline of, of what happened on that fateful day? Mary Fagan, the 13-year-old uh, laborer, came into the factory on a Saturday, April 26, 1913, which was Confederate Memorial Day, a very symbolically and actually important holiday in the South then. And she came to get her pay. And the factory was shut down because of the holiday. But Leo Frank was there working. And Mary Fagan walked into Frank's second floor office. And in those days, you not only didn't have electric electronic deposit, you didn't even get a check. And Frank handed her an envelope containing the change. And it was a dollar and 20 cents for her work that week. And she asked Frank, has the metal come yet? There was a shortage in a metal shipment in her department, and he said no. And according to Frank, she walked away, and he never saw her again. However, within minutes after leaving Frank's office, Mary Fagan ended up dead in the factory building. And the mystery was, how did that happen? It was a big, old, drafty, downtown Atlanta building, and she winds up dead. And the prosecution would allege that Leo Frank actually told her when she asked, has the metal come, let's go see, and led her to a department further in the back of the building where he attempted to seduce her. The defense would say that did not happen at all, that instead she went down the stairs from Frank's office where she was waylaid by a black janitor at the factory named Jim Conley, who was Leo Frank's chief accuser. And on that, uh, those two differences of what happened that day would turn the entire trial. And just a little background about Leo Frank and why was he ultimately accused of the murder? Well, Frank was the last person to admit having seen Mary Fagan alive. So Regardless of any of the social and religious and uh, class differences that would ultimately come into play here, just in terms of being in the wrong place at the wrong time, Leo Frank was there, and today or any other time, he would be a suspect. But added to that, he was a cerebral, Cornell-educated uh, mechanical engineer who was not very warm and winning. Uh, he, like many engineers, he lived in his head. Um, and ultimately, uh, he was a Jew in a Gentile city. And here he was 
running this factory where the class tensions and anxieties were not just tacit, they were there for everyone to see. And many of the parents who sent their children off to work in factories like the National Pencil Company were um, upset that their kids had to go to work at age 12, 13 to help out uh, and keep food on the table. And that this little girl, Mary Fagan, would be found dead in the factory, killed on a symbolic holiday, Confederate Memorial Day, suggested to the parents and an entire swath of Atlanta society that not only did Leo Frank want to um, take financial advantage of these young girls in his factory, but he wanted to take sexual advantage of them as well. So it was a powder keg of resentment and uh, class anxiety. What was the evidence against Frank, and how strong was that evidence? It was an entirely circumstantial evidence case, and by that, though, I don't mean it was a bad case. Many of the most convincing cases in jurisprudence are circumstantial evidence cases. Direct evidence is often not as reliable as circumstantial evidence, but he was terribly nervous when the police came to ask him about what had happened that day. He seemed to try to do everything in his power to avoid answering obvious questions and um, to not even go to see the little girl's body. The police took him to the morgue to identify her. Now, in fairness to Frank, um, it was a terrible crime. It was something that would have upset anyone. And the police were gruff and uh, difficult to deal with. And um, so he was frightened, as I think many people would be in that circumstance. As days progressed, however, other peculiar evidence began to mount against Frank. Uh, Mary Fagan's body was discovered by a night watchman named Newt Lee. And Newtley, as Night Watchman did in those days, carried a punch card, which he would punch periodically to show that he'd made his rounds in this big factory building. When Leo Frank first looked at the punch card, he said, Lee hit all his marks. Everything is A-OK. A day or two later, Frank looks at it and tells the police, oh, he missed several marks, looking as if Frank was trying to suggest that Newt Lee could have killed Mary Fagan, that Newt Lee had some time on his hands that day that he couldn't account for. So facts like this began to accrue. And it was still, though, a very murky, difficult problem until at the 11th hour of the investigation, this Black janitor at the factory, Jim Conley, solved the case for the police. I should add, importantly, Mary Fagan's body was found in the basement of the factory, and it was a gruesome scene. The basement was full of pencil grinds and lead, and she'd been dragged over the basement floor to the point where when Newt Lee found the body, he couldn't determine whether she was white or black. Her face was just smothered in ashes, and by the body were two very strange notes that purported to have been written by Mary in her death throes. One was on a company order pad, the other just on a piece of lined notepaper. And they said, essentially, in total, um, ma'am, that long, tall, Negro black down here do this. I write while he play with me. 
that long, tall Negro Black, that who it was. And the notes were full of grammatical errors, spelling errors, and the police immediately knew that Mary Fagan could not have written these notes in this dark space by herself in an attempt to point the finger at a long, tall Black Negro as her assailant. But beyond that, they were utterly puzzled. Well, Jim Connolly, the Black janitor, came along and said that he wrote those notes and that he wrote them at Leo Frank's dictation and that he had done so because Frank was attempting an assignation with Mary Fagan. It had gone terribly wrong. He had struck her. She had died. And furthermore, Connolly said this was a pattern of behavior by Leo Frank at the factory, that he used his office as superintendent to seduce these young girls and that he then got Connolly to stand guard during these assignations. So that tied things up in a knot for the Atlanta police. And it not only pointed the finger at Leo Frank as the murderer, but it pointed at a motivation, which was sex. And it um, played to all these boiling anxieties in the working class Atlanta population about what this industrialist was doing at the factory when he wasn't making pencils. What was the main defense? And did the defense team, in your opinion, do a good job? The defense lawyers were the best in Atlanta, which was good and bad. Uh, The good thing was they were very good lawyers. The bad thing is they were arrogant and had really no uh, appreciation of the kind of trouble that Leo Frank was in, the deeper depths that this case had already touched before it even got into the courtroom. But their defense was that sex was not the motive at all, that Mary Fagan, after having received her pittance of wages from Leo Frank, had gone into the lobby of the factory where uh, Alonzo Mann would say he saw Jim Conley manhandling her years later, and that Jim Conley had indeed assaulted her there. And he assaulted her because he wanted the dollar and 20 cents. He was dead broke. It was Saturday. He was already drinking before noon. He needed the money. And that that was the motive. And um, then the defense would do something quite ill-advised. They entered Leo Frank's character into evidence. And in a murder case, defense lawyers rarely do that because it means that the prosecution in rebuttal can produce witnesses to testify to someone's bad character. So the defense brought many of Atlanta's leading Jews, not all Jews, uh, leading industrialists of every religion and bankers and uh, philanthropists to testify to Leo Frank's good character. What a bright young man he was in the community. He was the president of the Atlanta B'nai B'rith. He was um, involved in many charitable and artistic uh, events around town. So there was a parade of people testifying to all this. And after that parade of uh, people attested to Leo Frank's good character, the prosecution brought a number of people to the stand to testify to his bad character. And these witnesses were primarily young girls who worked at the factory. And every one of them was a stand-in for Mary Fagan. And it was as if Mary Fagan was rising from the dead and saying, these 
wealthy people saw the good side of Leo Frank, but we in the workforce saw that this guy was a, is a predator and uh, that he was sexually harassing us at the very least and trying to do more at the worst. So it backfired and uh, it ultimately led to Frank being tried really for two crimes, even though officially he was being tried for only one. Uh, he was being tried for the murder of Mary Fagan, but implicitly he was being tried for uh, sexual assault throughout the building. He became a vehicle for uh, fears about sexual predation.